invite you to turn in God's Word this evening to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. We're actually merging together this evening um, our series on people whose names begin with the letter O and with our message this morning, this as the follow-up of the picture for us of Christ's great and beautiful love for His bride, the church. That's what Psalm 45 is about. So as we read through it, be thinking of that. Psalm 45, to the choir master, according to Lilies, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companion. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. Let's fire the reading of God's Word. I invite you to keep the psalm open before us tonight as we make our way through it. Let's bow in a time of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. We thank you that we are able to gather here to worship you. We thank you for the scriptures that you provided for us. We ask that all this in your name alone. Amen. And amen. 
So it's the phrase that we find at the end of verse 9. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Now the question to look at tonight is, what does that mean and why is it important? And what is the significance to you and I? What does it mean? Why, why do these sons of Korah, these musicians, write a psalm in which they speak about the gold of Ophir. What's the point of that? Now, we might just readily pass it by and say, oh, there's nothing to learn here. That's something that, well, perhaps is just, it, it just comes up. It's just, uh, it's just mentioned. But you know, when you start digging into God's Word, you, you find out that this gold of Ophir, has a significance and a meaning that when you apply it to this text, draws something out. But then when you look at the psalm in the whole and understand who this psalm is about and who it is that is dressed in the gold of Ophir, I hope you do not leave this evening the same. I hope you leave changed. The earliest mention, which is our first point, secondly, it was extremely abundant in resources, and thirdly, the excellent image in the psalm. I'll repeat those as we go through it. The earliest mention of Ophir is actually found in the book of Genesis. So, Keep your finger here at Psalm 45. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 10. It's that passage that man, we probably don't, we may skip over for family devotions if we're reading through the Bible. Uh, we might be, tend to do that because it's kind of full of names and a lot of them are very hard to pronounce, and it might take weeks and weeks and weeks just to figure out how they're all pronounced. And uh, that's the kind of passage that sometimes dads skip because else their kids are giggling uh, in the corner because uh, you're going, that's not the way you say that, Dad. Okay? Sort of like the way you do sometimes with Pastor Bob and the way I pronounce some of the terms. But Genesis chapter 10 is where we find the first mention of this Ophir. And we're going to find that it is the, actually the name of an individual. It's the name of a person that comes to stand for a place, a location. And I'll say right off the bat, we have no idea where the location is. We have no clue where this place of Ophir is. There, there, there's nowhere we can go that says, Ophir's located right here. We have theories that go from India to South Africa and about every place in between. So we don't know where it is, but we know it existed. And we know it existed because there was a man by the name of Ophir who is one of the descendants of Shem. So if you started at Genesis chapter 10... And we started at verse 
21, we start reading those descendants of Shem. On and on and on they go. And then you have, down at the verse 25, you have this wonderful name that I'm still waiting for somebody to name their kid. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Jotan. And then we go, Jotan fathered, and we have the list of those he fathered, which includes, in verse 29, Ophir. All these, we are told at the end of verse 29, were the sons of Jotan. But now, verse 30, the territory in which they live. So these are the descendants of Shem. The territory where Noah's sons, Shem, his descendants lived. Extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then it tells us again, Noah's sons spread out and so on. So what ends up happening is that these sons go out to different portions, different areas. God told them and commanded them, go out and fill the earth. But you recall we have the Tower of Babel. They refuse to do so. So God sends in the, this differing of languages, and now they're forced to spread out. Genesis chapter 10, okay, is, is helping us to understand that, okay, as to what happened. I know the Tower of Babel story is next, but what we just read is a summary. So chapter 10 summarizes what happens. Chapter 11 tells us why it happened. Why did these people all spread out? Why didn't they all stay together? Because of the Tower of Babel. So they've spread out everywhere. Ophir is one of the places they spread to because Ophir is one of these sons and the land he settled became known by his name. The second mention comes in the book of Job. Now, as we go to our Bible, we'd say, well, that's much later. Now, Job is a contemporary of, of somewhere uh, of the patriarchs between Noah and Abraham or Isaac and Jacob. He fits into that part of Genesis. That's when Job lives. Now, if you go to Job chapter 28, as Job is reasoning I guess we could say, arguing, conferring with God. Okay? We, we have these various discourses. In chapter 28, he's speaking about wisdom and how important wisdom is and the value of wisdom and how important above all other things it is to gain wisdom, to have understanding, which biblically means to know the Lord, which is that which is above all. Now, go to chapter 28, go to verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot weighed at its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. 
So here's Job living, in a sense, a short time after the Genesis chapter 10 passage. Ophir is not now the name of a man, it's the name of a place for sure. And it is known by that time for the gold and the value of the gold. It is known for the gold that is above that which, which you might normally mine. Maybe we would use various carrots to describe it. This is the finest of gold. This is the purest of gold. This is the choicest of gold. This is the, the costliest of gold. You can't get better gold than you get from Ophir. That's the point that Job is making here. And, and wisdom is to be valued even above that finest and choicest of gold that you can get from Ophir. So wherever Job's living... He knows that this place, Ophir, which exists somewhere in this world, is a place known for its gold. But it's known for more than its gold. It's known for its abundance. It's abundance of gold, but it's abundance of many things. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 9. Don't worry, I'm going to get back to Psalm 45. 1 Kings Chapter 9. Now we're in the time of Solomon. So we've moved ahead several thousand years. It would be safe to say that from where we were in Genesis chapter 10 and Job chapter 28 to where you are now in 1 Kings chapter 9, about 3,000 years of history have occurred. That's a long time. Right? 3,000 years. Solomon is about, in this chapter, building the temple of the Lord. And he is about accumulating that which he needs to do the work. He gets together some ships... And they sail the ships from a place called Ezon Geber. Now I'll take you to the verse. Chapter 9, let's go down to verse 28, or verse 26. So King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezon Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen, who were familiar with the sea, Israelites, we're not sea people, okay? But Hiram, king of Tyre, was. And Hiram and Solomon have various agreements with one another, and so Hiram is in on this as well. Seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon, and they went to Ophir. 3,000 years later, this place is still existing. They went to Ophir and brought from there gold. 420 talents of gold. And they brought it to King Solomon. Take a guess at the value of 420 talents of gold today. 
$1 billion. Right? 420 talents of gold. Where did they go for it? They went to Ophir. But gold is not the only thing they went for. Go to chapter 10, verse 11. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almug wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almug wood has come or has been seen to this day. So what did we just learn from chapter 10, verse 11? We just learned that this excursion to Ophir was to accumulate, to pick up supplies to be used for what? The temple. For the worship of God. Musical instruments. But there's more. Go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 9. 2 Chronicles chapter 9. Now we're basically in the same time period. We're at the same event. We're, we're in the same situation. Only 2 Chronicles 9 gives us a little bit more about what Solomon got, received from Ophir. Chapter 9, verse 21. For the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish used to come, bringing gold. We already knew that. But they also brought silver. They also brought ivory. They also brought apes and peacocks. And I think some versions include spices as well. Lead some commentators to think, well, maybe Ophir is sort of some sort of trade center of some sort where everything goes through. Or one can just read it as it is and say, Ophir had abundant resources. Now, put it together with what Job said in Job chapter 28, that the finest, the finest comes from Ophir. The finest of gold. What is Solomon using? The gold and the wood. Note the, what it said about the wood there in chapter 10, verse 11. They, you can't find this stuff anywhere. This stuff, this wood, it's beautiful. This wood is strong. It's that wood, that which came from Ophir, which needed to be used, what? In the temple, for the house of the Lord. And for what? The musical instruments. Now, just make the little tie-in. Psalm 45 is written by the sons of Korah, who are what? The musicians. What do you suppose the musicians are playing? They're playing the instruments that were made from Elmug wood that Solomon had designed for the worship of God. See, when we get this mention now in Psalm 45, this is not just some passing mention. This is to remind us of the fine quality 
of the preciousness of the resources that were available there in Ophir. And the fact that there was an ongoing supply. What did this passage just tell us? Every three years those ships went and came back. Three years they come back. They bring more. What? More gold, more silver, more ivory, more apes, more peacocks, more wood. There is so much it just keeps coming and coming and coming. There is an abundance. There's a house and the worship of God. Now back to Psalm 45. See, you have, we have to have that as the background to understand what it is that the sons of Korah are writing about. So what is the scene of Psalm 45? The scene is this. It is a picture of a marriage, of a royal marriage. Now, we ought to have Dr. Tim here, okay, as, as a... British citizen to perhaps give us the full details of how this works. But we've watched it enough on our TV screen, right? What are the commentators like? She's holding flowers, and they're flowers, and these are the petals, and this is where they grew. Oh, look, there he stands. He's got his military regalia on. He's got his sword by his side. And they're just gushing, right? It's like, man, oh, man, can't you people be quiet for a few minutes? Right? They just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about this beautiful scene that is before him. Do you know that's what the psalmist is doing? My heart overflows. I'm watching this, I'm observing this, and my heart is overflowing with this theme. For I understand that which I see. I understand the significance of that which I am observing. My heart is overflowing. Some would say, thankfully we don't have kings and queens. If you're from the other side of the pond, they would say, you might get rid of a lot of problems if you did have kings and queens. But one of the things we miss out on, isn't it, is we miss out on this pageantry. Right? We, we miss out on, on that extravagance. Here, that extravagance is noted for us. The beauty that is before us in this scene. A bride in gold. That's the picture, isn't it? There she is, verse 9. At your right hand stands the queen in gold. Not just any gold, not just some gold, not just some gold that we got from anywhere. We got this gold from Ophir. There she stands. But you see, this psalm really isn't about some royals getting married. This psalm is really about Christ and us. This psalm is about Christ and the church. And the reason this is a follow-up to this morning is this. Look at how he adores her.
Just watch how the king adores this bride. So we're introduced, first of all, to the victorious king. That's the first part of this, right? Okay? You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Gird at your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. You know, one might say, well, are we talking about Solomon getting married? Well, maybe that was the scene, but the picture is far greater than that. This is a picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When you, when you read through the rest of these verses, you, you find out that this, this is no earthly king, Right? In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of unrighteousness. This is a picture of King Jesus. And it's a royal wedding. That is taking place. And there is Christ. And all his power. And all his majesty. There is Christ the victor. There is Christ. The risen Lord. The one who is the king of kings. And the Lord of lords. The one who rides white horse there's Christ standing at the end of the aisle and his bride comes notice verse 9 it's a chosen bride daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor at your right hand Stands the queen in gold of Ophir. You see, the significance of that standing at your right hand is this. The king has made his decision. See, there's all these others, but they are not chosen. Only this one is chosen. And in this glorious picture of the bride as the church, we must never forget, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are the chosen. We did not choose Christ. Christ chose us. It is out of Christ's love, out of Christ's mercy, out of Christ's grace that we as the bride have been chosen by him. It's not because of our beauty. It's not because of our appearance. He's the one who makes us beautiful. Oh, lesson, 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 right, for the Christian husband. His goal is to make his wife the most beautiful of women. Not in terms of physical appearance, but spiritually. This is to be his goal. She's chosen. It's the church. Chosen and precious in his sight. Do you know when you, ha when you have a wedding, there, there's a point in time, right? If, if Generally, weddings run something like this, right? The, the groom's down here. He's all decked out. Here comes the bride down the aisle, and they stop 
right? They stop right about at that end of that first row, okay? And, and in essence, that's decision moment. The decision moment is this. Do we carry on from this point on? Do we go forward? At, at this point, you can still turn around and leave, right? So listen, listen to the bridegroom. The bridegroom is at the end, and he's saying, Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. There is a call going out to her. Yes, I've chosen you to be my bride, but you need to consider. Are you ready for the cost? Are you ready for the price? Are you ready to leave your people? Are you ready to leave your father's house? See, this is what Christ asks of us as the church. Christ comes to us and says, consider. Consider the cost. Consider the price of following me. This isn't a forced. This isn't no shotgun wedding. Yes, the bride is chosen, but Christ, in his love and in his mercy, places before this bride a consider. Consider. Turn with me very, very quickly to Luke chapter 14. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 14. Here's Christ. Talking about the cost of discipleship. Here's how it ends. Verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You, you hear that in Psalm 45? Hear, O daughter, consider, climb your ear. Christ comes to us and says, consider Consider what it means to be one of my followers. Consider what it means, wife, to submit to your husband, even though he may not be a believer. Consider, husband, what it means to love as Christ loved the church. Consider. Turn with me as well to John chapter 21. John 21, we're in that morning hour breakfast of fish by the sea. John 21, here's Christ again. Simon, verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Isn't that what's happening at a wedding? The groom stands there. Do you love me more than all your other suitors? Am I the one under whose authority you want to come? Oh, there's that beautiful picture. She's committed. 
He's following through. And look at this bride. Just look at her. Clothed in gold from over. Verse 13. All glorious is the princess. That's the same as the bride. The queen in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. See, we often speak, do we not, that we as the church are clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. How do we describe them? Well, biblically, we describe them how? As white, pure, just like a bride. They're white, bridal dress. Psalm 44 adds something to that. There's gold there. It's not just any gold. It's the gold of Ophir. The church stands beautifully before Christ. And its robes of white interwoven the finest and choicest of gold. What does that say? What does that picture tell us? Well, if the picture was she bought her own dress, we'd say she paid a lot of money for a dress to show up at the wedding. It's not the way it works in royalty. He buys. He purchases. This is what he wants his bride attired in. This is what Christ sees in you and I. This is his love. This is his desire. This is his passion. He gives himself on a cross. So that his bride, his church, you and I, might appear in white robes interwoven with the costliest, the purest of gold from Ophir. We aren't just anybody to Christ. We are adored by Christ. He loves us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. All the lessons to be learned from this picture that we have of this gold of Ophir. And it results in a joyful celebration. Verse 15, with joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. The wedding is done. The marriage. The marriage has been solemnized, we might say. And there's joy. My friend, today, today is your heart. As a believer in Jesus Christ, as part of the church of Jesus Christ, filled with joy. Because of what Christ has made you to be. 
not because of who you've made yourself to be, but because of who Christ has made you to be. You're not the scum of the earth. You're not the dregs of society. You are the bride of Christ. Beautiful white garment that you're woven with the gold of Ophir. Oh, how he values you. Oh, how he adores you. Oh, how he loves you and me. For what? Marriage like Chuck and Die? Big to do, big show, it's all there. That we get to all the mess. No. No, the picture of this wedding is a picture of permanence. In the place of your father shall be sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. Verse 17. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. There is an eternal relationship that is made between the bride and the bridegroom. It's an eternal covenant, an eternal relationship. So much so that when we come to the end of the book, when we come to Revelation chapter 21, what is the place described as? Jerusalem the golden, right? But listen to these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. How? As a bride. As a bride, beautifully prepared for her husband. Where does the church reside? In the place that looks like a bride prepared for her husband. And how does Revelation 21 describe that? Golden. It's golden. Not because of gold, the physical stuff. But it represents the costliest. Our relationship to Christ is because of the cost that he paid the finest of gold that we might be clothed with. It cost him his blood, his life. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that what? She can be beautiful, spiritual bride. Father, thank you. In this psalm, hidden in a phrase, is a word we've probably never considered or thought of. And yet, Father, you gave it to us. You gave us that word, Ophir. So that we could see the beauty of Christ's love for us. Thank you.
for loving us. Thank you for clothing us. Thank you for reminding us. The world's throwing some ugly, ugly stuff in our direction as the church of Jesus Christ. Help us not to forget who we are. It's not who the world says we are. It's who Christ declares us to be. In his name we pray and God's people say, Amen.